Welcome to Near East PolicyCast, episode 38, for February 26, 2018. I'm Scott Rogers, online editor at the Washington Institute. From February 12 to 14, representatives of governments, NGOs, and private businesses from around the world met in Kuwait for a conference that was intended to raise $85 billion for rebuilding destroyed areas and resettling displaced Iraqis in formerly ISIS-controlled territory. In the end, the Kuwait conference raised $30 billion. Was this a failure for Iraqi reconstruction or the start of a longer process? Is Baghdad equipped to handle and spend even that lower amount of reconstruction funding? I think a misconception in the media was that the Kuwait conference was the start of the discussion of how do you rebuild or stabilize Mosul. And I think that misses the the important activity that's been happening over the past year. That was Rand Corporation scholar Shelley Culbertson, who spoke at a February 16 policy forum at the Washington Institute. She was joined by Alexandra Zittel, Economic Chief in the State Department's Office of Iraqi Affairs, and Jeffrey Batt, who manages an Iraqi-focused private investment fund. We'll hear from all three on the Kuwait Conference and the future of public and private investment in Iraq as that country recovers from the 2014 through 2017 ISIS conflict. After this. This is Rob Satloff, Executive Director of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. The Institute is dedicated to advancing a balanced and realistic understanding of American interests in the Middle East and promoting those policies that secure them. Find all our research and analysis at WashingtonInstitute.org or follow us on Twitter at WashInstitute. First, we'll hear from Alexandra Zittel. She's the Economic Chief in the State Department's Office of Iraqi Affairs. I just returned from Kuwait. I was there for the three-day reconstruction conference that the government of Kuwait, the government of Iraq with close coordination with the EU, the UN, and the World Bank uh, were hosting. Uh, It was a three-day event that brought together high-level official government officials, um, civil society, private sector, and and the investment institutions to help Iraq uh, mobilize support for Iraq Reconstruction Conference. On the uh, first day of the conference, the government of Iraq uh, launched the 10-year reconstruction and development framework. Uh, They've been working on it jointly with the World Bank, and it was the result of their damage assessment, uh, damage and needs assessment, and and national investment and national development plan. And it sets the framework for government reforms, private sector investment, and international financing uh, to help rebuild communities, create jobs in Iraq, and modernize Iraq's economy. After three-day event, um, more than 25 countries and multi, uh, multilateral organization, organization pledged nearly $30 billion in loans, grants, and investment projects uh, to support Iraq's reconstruction. The conference just ended, uh, but we can already say that it was a tremendous success. Um, the ex- extraordinary financial assistance from regional governments provides unequivocal support for the defeat ISIS and demonstrates strong desire to see Iraq prosper and better integrate into the region. We were particularly encouraged by the unprecedented support offered by Iraq's neighbors and their contributions. Um, As you might be already tracking, Kuwait offered uh, $2 billion in assistance, Turkey over $5 billion, Saudi Arabia uh, $1.5 billion, Qatar $1 billion, United Arab Emirates over Five and a half billion and Arab social fund billion and a half. And these numbers reps, represent a mix of sovereign loans, non-sovereign credit, financing and project guarantees, uh, as well as private sector investment. 
the event in the events in Kuwait earlier this week are only the first step in a much larger endeavor to rebuild Iraq. And for three years, ISIS displayed millions of civilians, plundered cities, and devastated public infrastructure. Uh, the magnitude of destruction requires a long-term commitment towards rebuilding the country, and the United States will continue to stand shoulder to shoulder with Iraq uh, to help them with that effort. And I have to mention that even before this conference and since 2014, the United States was already the largest donor, providing more than $6 billion in economic and security assistance to Iraq. This includes $1.7 billion in humanitarian assistance and then $265 million for stabilization efforts. The latter allowed internally displaced people over $3 billion returned to their homes. The United States remains committed to a stable, prosperous, and unified Iraq and has contributed greatly towards the support for Iraq's macroeconomic stability. In January 2017, uh, Iraq closed on a $1 billion sovereign bond issuance that was guaranteed by the United States. And as a condition of this loan, Iraq later completed a separate $1 billion unenhanced bond sale in August 2017. Both loans provide Iraq with access to low-cost financing to service critical public services while creating the fiscal conditions for responsible economic growth. These efforts, together with Iraq's essential work, work with the World Bank and the IMF, have helped maintain its macroeconomic stability even throughout the turbo war uh, that it fought against ISIS. The United States uh, never envisioned the Iraq Reconstruction Conference to be a pledging event. It was not about meeting a specific goal or crossing a threshold of donations. Uh, to put it another way, Kuwait Conference was not crowdfunding. And that is because Iraq cannot meet its long-term reconstruction needs exclusively through humanitarian assistance, cash grants, or international monetary assistance program. Iraq must reform and grow its economy through private sector investment, which will lay the foundation for long-term and multi-year path toward job creation and sustainable recovery. Iraq's presentation at the conference showed the path Iraq would take over the next 10 years. Following the war with ISIS and leading up to the Reconstruction Conference, the body government signaled a willingness to implement a set of economic reforms, fight corruption, and ease barriers to foreign and domestic investment. Promoting U.S. business in Iraq is a top priority for State, uh, for State Department and our embassy in Baghdad, and we're working hand-in-hand -hand with our colleagues from interagency on that effort. Therefore, mobilizing the innovative capabilities of American companies and will continue to be a critical component of the United States strategy to expand economic ties and increase foreign investment to enable Iraq's reconstruction. The State Department partnered with, with the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to organize a large delegation of American companies to participate in the Reconstruction Conference. And I don't know, many of you might recall initially Iraq, uh, the government of Iraq planned or anticipated 400 to 500 participants in the private sector event that was uh, happening on February 13. Uh, the response from private sector was overwhelming. And we've learned, uh, when I talked to Dr. Sami, who is the head of the National uh, Investment Committee, on the day of the event, he said that there were 2,800 participants who registered for it. Um, so because of this overwhelming interest, they had to switch the venue. So it just tells you how much um, interest there is from the private sector in, in Iraq. And during the February 13 private sector portion of the Kuwait conference, representatives from uh, from American companies and other foreign investors 
review and evaluated, evaluated close to 200 projects prioritized by the Iraqi government for private sector investment. And these are the projects that will rehabilitate critical infrastructure, restore transportation networks, energize the health and educational sectors, and create efficiencies in, in Iraq's oil and gas industries. With their strategic vision, financial backing, and technical capacity, the United States brought to Kuwait some of the most advanced companies capable of designing sustainable long-term economic uh, solutions that will create a modern 21st century economy in Iraq. And it was very clear during the messaging from the government of Iraq during the conference, Iraq is now open for business, and the American private sector is already thriving there. And in just last few months, we've seen uh, American companies completing commercial agreements to supply Iraq with over $2 billion of agricultural products, power generation, and electrical grid rehabilitation equipment, and re renewable energy technologies. The United States remains committed to Iraq's strategy to diversify its economy and build a robust private sector that will increase jobs and generate central government revenues to rebuild critical infrastructure and modernize key sectors of the Iraqi economy. As Secretary Tillerson uh, announced at the Reconstruction Conference, the United States will support American companies with their new investment in Iraq through the Export Import Bank and the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. And on Tuesday, um, at the private sector portion of the event, uh, the Exim Bank and the Iraq's Ministry of uh, Finance signed a memorandum of understanding that will make available $3 billion of export credit financing for U.S. companies that want to invest in key sectors of Iraq's economy, including energy, uh, transportation, and commodities. Similarly, OPEC, is, which supports economic development through a model of investment, is currently managing five projects in Iraq worth $250 million and is reviewing over $500 million uh, of new projects proposals. OPEC financing over the years has helped Iraq increase the supply of affordable housing and provided support for entrepreneurs to start or expand their existing businesses in Iraq. So in closing, the United States remains committed to Iraq's stability and the recovery efforts. Uh, the strategic framework agreement, which was signed in 2008, will continue to serve as the basis upon which the United States deepens trade on commercial ties with Iraq, while advocating for economic reforms that reduce corruption, streamline visa and business procedures, and enforce contracts and arbitrary disputes. The government of Iraq's 10-year reconstruction and development framework is impressive and ambitious, but it is right, and the United States will support Prime Minister Abadi in his effort to attract investment and grow his country's economy, uh, not only today, but over decades to come. That was Alexandra Zittel. Next, we'll hear from Shelley Culbertson, a senior policy researcher at the RAND Corporation and co-author with Linda Robinson of Making Victory Count After Defeating ISIS, Stabilization Challenges in Mosul and Beyond. So our study looked at uh, what are the steps that need to happen um, after the military operations to bring immediate stability to Mosul and then other parts of Iraq, and then also to help uh, displace people get home, and then once they get home, to find conditions that allow them to remain home. So to do this, we looked at four areas, the four that uh, Bilal mentioned, the humanitarian situation, security, uh, resumption of city life, and then governance and reconciliation. So we looked at um, whatever available data there was, did about 50 interviews with um, 
uh, with many of the leaders of the of the of the response, um, and then did a number of visits to Iraq to do this. And I think the bottom line conclusion is that without continued and sustained investment in helping Iraqis um, achieve a normal life once again, Iraq could unravel very quickly. And so uh, there's, a, there's a lot of support that is needed um, to to help Iraq. Iraq provided um, a global public good in, in in its role in defeating ISIS and took heavy casualties and destruction of its cities. And so there's a lot that can be done to, to help um, Iraq cover, recover as well. So in terms of the humanitarian situation, um, overall 5.7 million Iraqis were displaced between ISIS and the fighting to liberate parts of Iraq from ISIS. That is such a huge number. I just, I'm astonished every time I, I hear it. But I think a big success is that over 3 million people have been able to return home. But that still leaves 2.6 million displaced Iraqis, 1.6 million of whom are from Nineveh province, of which Mosul is the capital. And 400,000 of those people are still living in camps, which were built, uh, they were meant to be temporary, but um, uh, they're not up to international camp standards because they were built uh, so so quickly. Uh, so there are a number of issues that uh, remain to be addressed in gaps um, with the humanitarian situation of these displaced people. So the first is that th those who remain displaced uh, maybe are some of the hardest people to uh, actually get home. This is because their homes are destroyed, uh, their local disputes with neighbors, uh, lack of jobs. And this is particularly the case for families who may have supported ISIS but may or may not have had you know, criminal activity as well. The next issue with this is, is the potential that some of the camps could turn into long-term urban slums. So I've looked at raf refugee issues for the past couple of years around the world, and in particular in the Middle East, and while camps are meant to be temporary and everyone goes in with that assumption, the tendency is, is that they can last for years, if not decades. So if you look at, say, the, the Zachary camp in Jordan uh, that was set up for the Syrians, that is now, you know, with buildings and plumbing and electricity uh, turning into an urban center. So there's a risk that, in particular, some of the people from West Mosul um, uh, may end up living in these camps unless there are ways to get them, get them home. The next issue with this is the longer-term internally displaced persons. So over 70% of the kids who've been displaced have missed a, at least a year of school. So you've got a generation of displaced kids um, who've missed school and may have a hard time um, fitting back into the school system um, and then um, getting the education that they need for uh, citizenship and a contribution to the economy. And then finally, among the displaced, um, the elections are in May. Um, it's really important to find ways to get these 2.6 million people um, to vote. Uh, the majority of them are Sunni, and if this group as a bloc cannot vote, um, it will seriously call into question the legitimacy of the elections. And so there's, there's some efforts underway uh, to make this happen, but I think this is a, this is a big area where assistance um, uh, could be additional to help that. Um, the next issue we looked at was security. And in surveys of displaced people, security is the number one reason why they don't go home. Um, there are two main issues with security. The first are mine hazards. Um, at this point, the areas that were occupied by ISIS are some of the most heavily mined and explosive contaminated in the entire world. Um, and the mine hazards come from three sources. So the first is that there's some legacy mining from previous wars. This has been fairly mapped out. There's some pretty good data on it, and it's removals ongoing. But the two main things are that 
um, ISIS used explosives in civilian locations as an intentional tactic to try to prevent civilians from returning home. So they mined pharmacies and schools and baby cribs and water plants. And um, talking to some of the United Nations mine action workers who were working on this last week, they said in Mosul that every like 90% of the buildings that they have assessed um, have some kind of explosive uh, um, or, or booby trapping left by ISIS. So this is massive. And then third type is unexploded uh, coalition ordinance. So there are thousands of unexploded bombs um, in the cities, uh, particularly in Mosul. And so um, addressing uh, some of the demining and explosive hazard mitigation is really a key priority. Um, a big challenge and gap in this is that right now there's funding and activity to address this at the public uh, building level, um, so the, the public infrastructure and so forth, but there's nothing on housing. Uh, they're short of funding. They don't have uh, – they, they need additional equipment and they need additional um, – legal permissions to be able to do this. So this is such a huge prerequisite for um, many of the other building to happen, and yet it's, it's, it's a bit, I think it's under the radar. Um, the second security issue is of policing. So many of the uh, security forces that, that fought ISIS um, or were hold forces are still um, in, in these areas, and in some cases they're very popular, and then in other cases the population is really coming to resent them as they don't have proper civilian um, police training. So um, Mosul needs an estimated 25,000 police, um, and these people have to be hired and trained. So the Italians and Canadians have been doing a lot to do uh, some some police training, um, but as of a couple of months ago, they had trained about 15,000, um, and a lot more are needed. And that, that's just Mosul. Um, the U.S. is uh, legally prohibited from investing in police training, but this is a big area that perhaps with um, you know some um, some some uh, uh, congressional um, um, activity could could be a good investment for the United States in in helping. Uh, with training for community police. The third issue uh, looked at was resuming city life. And I think this is the area that uh, the Mosul conference seemed to focus most on with, you know, pe people think of, oh, you have to rebuild the country. This is buildings and um, and housing and, and, and water and power and so forth. Um, and there was really tremendous damage. I mean, Mosul, all five bridges were damaged or destroyed. Um, Roads, public utilities, heritage sites, 11 million tons of residential debris, 40,000 houses destroyed, 16 neighborhoods destroyed, water, sanitation, power, all largely destroyed or, or mined. I think the good news is that um, there are a lot of key infrastructure repairs underway. I think a misconception in the media was that the Kuwait conference was the start of the discussion of how do you rebuild or stabilize Mosul. And I think that misses the, um, the important activity that's been happening over the past year. So there are about 1,600 uh, um, projects for stabilization that address some of these public, um, public infrastructure issues from UNDP. The World Bank, in particular, has been investing in, in power, uh, electricity, water, et cetera. So those things are underway, but there's a lot more that needs to, to, to happen there. I, I think the, the Kuwait conference is really not the start of the conversation, but it's also not the end of the conversation as well. So $30 billion um, were committed, uh, $88 billion um, was requested. But $30 billion is a lot, in particular when you think about absorptive capacity and what it takes to be able to spend that $30 billion. A lot has to happen in order to make it possible to spend that. There needs to be some anti-corruption measures, um, processes and procedures put in place so that not every decision about 
every project has to get bumped up to the prime minister's office. So until some of these, these technical changes can happen, it's hard to absorb that $30 billion. Iraq also has resources from, from oil money and the you know, price of oil is going up. I think one risk there is that Iraq already has the second highest uh, level of, of public sector employment in the world right after Cuba. Um, so 40% of employment is is uh, with the government. And so there's a risk that as oil prices go up and the Iraqi central government has a bigger budget, that there will be pressure to try to uh, provide provide jobs and deal with some of the unemployment. So dealing with uh, enabling the private sector, I think as Jeff will talk about, will be really key there as well. And then finally looking at uh, governance and reconciliation issues. So our study looked at governance and reconciliation both at local and at national levels. At the, at the local level, there are a lot of unresolved questions about what's going to happen in some of the provinces that had um, uh, such disputes, for example, in Nineveh. Some of the minorities, for example, are calling to split up some of the provinces. So ad addressing, having a process in place to deal with some of these governance questions will be really key. Staffing will also be key. A lot of people kept their jobs under ISIS, but there's a difference between someone who, you know, continued, you know, cleaning the streets versus someone who engaged in criminal activity. And so it's important to come up with a set of standards and justice procedures um, that, can, uh, that can help sort through that without repeating the mistakes of debathification and just firing wholesale everyone who worked under ISIS uh, because there are big differences and you know, criminal activity should be defined and punished without collective punishment of everyone who continued living in these places. And reconciliation will also be um, a big issue. So neighboring communities just don't trust each other. They had a lot of trauma. Um, and there were some very a handful of successful activities um, elsewhere of trying to do some community-level negotiation. So for example, at Camp Spiker um, in Tikrit, there was a, a local negotiation effort that brought parties together, a uh, resolution. So more efforts like these are really needed. We, we heard from the United Nations that you know, Mosul could be done for, say, you know, you could, you could hire people to do community negotiation for about $2 million, uh, and, and that would really enable uh, some of the foundational work for uh, keeping the peace. At the national level, um, a national reconciliation process still you know, has never taken off, and I, I think this is one place where um, th this is a, a role that is really key for the United States. This is something that you know, only the U.S. has the, the, the convening power um, to be able to bring parties together and facilitate such a process. And I think this is one of the biggest places where the U.S. Um, could step forward, even if there's not much appetite for investing a lot of money, but by providing diplomatic facilitation um, over time to do that. On a more technical level, um, in 2013, Iraq passed a law to decentralize a lot of, of um, functions of the central government out to the provinces. Um, and the purpose of this was to try to remove some of the, um, the tensions between provinces and, and Baghdad by giving provinces more control over their own public services, like education, health care, youth management, sports, all those sorts of things for eight ministries. And um, while there has been some progress on this, the U.S., World Bank, Canada have uh, been providing support. Um, implementation has been very slow. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I personally think that for long-term stability in Iraq, the provinces will need to have, um, they'll need to be able to obtain a lot more um, um, local uh, self-governance in these areas to be able to, to, um, to be satisfied. I think that, that's a fundamental um, set of, of, of activities for, for stability in the long term.
So I think in sum, Iraq provided really a, a massive global public good in its part for defeating ISIS. And they took huge casualties, cities were destroyed, and our, our, our help as the international community is really needed. So there's, there's a lot of attention on the monetary assistance, you know, and was it enough, was it not enough, et cetera. But I think the biggest area to enable uh, this in the long term is technical assistance um, in helping Iraq provide, um, deal with some of these foundational problems like demining, like their education system, like the centralization, um, putting it, like in, in improving the business climate so that investors can um, take these, these, these steps. So I think the biggest role at this point um, for the U.S. That's, that's a gap is additional technical assistance and diplomatic support. That was Shelley Culbertson. Next, we'll hear from Jeffrey Batt, managing member of Euphrates Advisors, LLC. I can't really speak for other the private sector generally. I really don't know at this point what the reaction to the Kuwait conference is. Uh, but in my view, I look at the Kuwait conference to the extent that I even understand what its purpose was mm-hmm. as misguided. Understandable, because the country faces extraordinary challenges that there probably isn't a complete solution to. But uh, it's, to me, the latest in a long series of top-down, state-centered, mm-hmm. me- mega-project-driven investments that have largely failed. Um, we've been at this for 15 years. Iraq has, before the price of oil collapsed, was bringing in over $100 billion a year in revenue, spending tens of billion dollars on these massive projects, and they have very little to show for it. And I think we have to ask ourselves why that is. Again, from my point of view, it's, it's largely because their political system is uh, corrupt and uh, sclerotic. That, um, as Shelley was saying, there's been $30 billion committed to rebuild the country, but it's not at all clear that they could even spend that money. And if they could spend it, would it even reach its intended targets? Would most of it not be siphoned off through various corruption schemes? And uh, I think what we're looking at here is really sort of a failure at the Iraqi level and a failure at, at really every level, the international level with the American government, with the coalition governments, and so on, to come up with creative and radical solutions to this really serious and acute crisis that they have. And um, to me, I think we have to acknowledge that these top-down, this top-down approach has failed and that... The best way to, that there's really an urgent need to stabilize the situation in post-ISIS occupied territories as much, or as quickly as possible. And a way, the way to achieve that is to, um, consider something radical like an oil dividend. Mm. I know it's been considered in the past and largely, uh, rejected, um, or very, very sort of summarily rejected. But, uh, we're dealing with people in, in Anbar and, and in Saladin and so on that, are maybe living on three or four thousand dollars a year. Maybe they have five people in their family. If a three or four hundred dollar oil dividend distributed equally to each person wouldn't be that costly and it would have an immediate impact on the uh, standard of living for the people living in these areas. I also think it would do something that's been completely neglected uh, since Saddam was overthrown 15 years ago. Namely, it would help develop their banking sector and their financial uh, sector more broadly that there's been little to no attention given to developing Iraq's capital markets, and there's been little to no attention given to developing their private banking space. And it's sort of remarkable if you think about it. You have this country that has a $200 billion GDP, 
and it has about 9% of that is private credit. Um, it's very, 90% of the population doesn't use the banking system. So it's largely cash-based. And, you know, these one-off projects, even if they were to work, and I don't mean to say that they're, they're, not, they're not essential. Uh, based on what Shelley was describing up in Mosul, it seems like they are essential. But I question whether or not they can actually be effectively implemented. And if they can't be implemented, then it seems to me that what's needed is sort of a way to build a rack up from the bottom up. And an oil dividend would be a way to do that. Another way to do it would be to consider privatizing non-resource-based assets like Trade Bank of Iraq, which could uh, immediately raise between $1 and $2 billion for the Iraqi government. Yeah. So that's sort of the way I'm, I'm looking at things. Corruption takes place um, largely with the budget. When, From what I understand, when the money is allocated to the ministries and then they go ahead and allocate that money to their intended targets, that's where the corruption takes place. I mean, there have been various schemes over the past 15 years that involve the defense ministry where they set up shell companies in Canada to overpay for military equipment and then pocket the excess. It takes place uh, in the oil industry. It takes place at the, in, with the state-owned banks. But I, I think that's the real issue is that if you're going to disperse $10 billion to some mega project, how much of that money is actually going to make it there? There are going to be elites in the system that come up with schemes to siphon off much of that money. Not, not all of it, but enough of it where it really calls into question whether or not they can actually complete the project. And there's also these very long lead times between the signing of a contract and its actual implementation. And that, too, sort of gives people a lot of opportunity for corruption. So, but, I mean, there's literally an infinite number of schemes involved in, in, in um, siphoning off state, you know, revenues from the state or money from the state. And uh, the larger the project, the more likely it is that corruption is going to be involved. This has been Near East PolicyCast from the Washington Institute. For more research and analysis on the Middle East, find us online at WashingtonInstitute.org. Follow us on Twitter at Wash Institute and subscribe to us on YouTube at Washington Institute for events and video explainers. Thank you.